Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest needs no introduction really, Mike Hanley from GitHub. He's the Chief Security Officer and, and Senior Vice President of Engineering at GitHub. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me here today. It's good to be with you. You're two years in there at GitHub. And one of the things that has changed is adding the SVP of Engineering gig to the Chief Security Officer gig. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? And CISOs generally tell me I have the most impossible task. So why would you take on a second one? Help me understand like the thinking behind adding that dual role. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question to start up. You know, I, my view on this is, I mean, I love security, but I think there's a couple different types of a security leader, a few different archetypes that as a security leader you can fall into. And I think one of those archetypes is a security leader who's really passionate about products and how people experience security in products, whether it's a product feature or experiencing a security product. And I very much think that's the the bucket of CISO that I'm in. So I think it's a very natural extension to say, well, if, if security is core to everything about how GitHub operates as a platform and supporting the broader open source community and helping developers to make more secure software, we're already sort of working very cross-functionally very well with the teams that are building products. So I think it was a natural extension to move into running engineering. It's certainly a desire and an interest that I had expressed uh, okay. to the CEO. And when the opportunity came up, it, it was an easy yes uh, for me. Does it help make you a better CISO? And can you talk about how and why? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the best security work is happening as close as possible to the engineering field work. It's actually building and developing products. If you think about it, that's the cheapest and most effective place to make good security decisions. So I think with a security mindset and thinking about how do we get it right the first time, especially knowing that the impact associated with GitHub, either getting it right or wrong, can be very large in either direction. I think it's working really, really well. And we have the security leadership team is right side by side with the engineering leadership teams that are building products. And I think that chemistry works well for us. I'm not saying it's a pattern that every, every organization could necessarily follow or get away with. But what I'd say is, I would hope that we actually see more of this because I do think there are a lot of good, deeply technical CISOs who have backgrounds in engineering who have a lot to offer back by potentially rotating through or also taking on additional responsibilities. It doesn't always have to be the CISOs running IT as a common pattern that we see. It could be that, but it could also be CISOs potentially leading product organizations in sort of a dual hat role like what I've got. Is there any worry about the absence of oversight where the security team is serving as that oversight role to engineering and now you're taking on both roles? Like, can you talk a little bit about splitting those and if you were, if there's any worry there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I do come into everything, obviously, with that security mindset and background, having, you know, 20 yeah, plus yeah. years in the field. So I think that that's a it's a bias and I have to be open about that, of course, with the team, because it always helps to have a healthy dialogue uh, about that with the folks with various perspectives on the team. But I think it's um, if you're going to have a bias going into something, I think a bias of making sure that you get security right and you get it right at the beginning or the onset or the genesis of an idea or a project. This is the right role to have that approach. I mean, in terms of oversight, the nice thing is my boss, Thomas Domka, also has a great security background, having run uh, security functions and programs and other teams before. He has a deep appreciation for it. It's very much a pillar of what he was doing. And even before Thomas took the CEO role when Nat Friedman was here, one of the reasons that I came to GitHub was Nat really pitched me the role as an opportunity to have a massive security impact on the ecosystem. So there's no, the nice thing is at GitHub, there's no, there's no selling or pitching the idea that security is, is important. I think it's very core to everything that we do here. So the oversight is embedded in the fabric, I think, of the broader organization, which is healthy for us. 
How would you describe like your, the mission of your entire organization, taking both roles into consideration? What, like, let, me, let me flip the question this way. I feel like you have like one of the most significant roles in security, taking into consideration the supply chain ecosystem that you're like the hub of, basically. I mean, it's called GitHub for a reason. We see uh, supply chain issues in the executive order. We see constant, constant uh, uh, wave of news around this massive risk that exists here. I've had Omkar from the OpenSSF on the podcast. I've had the guy from ChainGuard, Dan Lawrence on the podcast. And these guys say, listen, we're in for a long haul. We're in the beginning of what will be a long haul. How do you view your own role and mission in the organization? Do you, do you, do you, is security like a bigger factor in your brain versus what it would normally be at, say, a startup working on authentication? Help me understand like, how you view your role. Yeah, I think GitHub as an organization, security is really one of our three top fundamentals, as we call them, internally inside the company. And those are really security making sure that the platform is safe and secure for everyone to use and the things that we build and ship are safe and secure. The second one is really availability. We have to always be up and running because we are the developer ecosystem that all of our customers and really the open source communities depend on. And then the third is really accessibility to make sure that as the home for all developers, we truly can be the home for uh, developers everywhere and making sure that the website is accessible to um, to any developer. So those those three things we really put as sort of the P0s or the topmost priorities in everything that we do. And they again, they exist throughout the development lifecycle of everything that we build, ship, and operate inside GitHub. Specific to security, though, I mean, I really view like there's three sub-pillars to that top priority. There's making sure that we keep the company and the business secure, right? Because, uh, you, you know, you... The, on any given day, obviously, there's uh, you know new news about a particular organization being attacked. Obviously, we're a um, an important part Higher of target, the ecosystem. Right. You, you'll yeah. be a, you, you view yourself as a bigger target as well, right? Yeah, I, th- I think we do, and I think we try to make sure we have an investment that's commensurate with the types of threats um, that we see in the broader ecosystem. So I would say we have a a relatively large um, security team compared to, for example, if I just look and compare notes with other software companies, I do, I do think our team is probably larger on average as a function of total headcount or uh, function of headcount that you have in engineering. Are those numbers um, publicly known or you share, can you share? Um, we don't share those, those numbers publicly, but it's, 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 large. it's a good so ratio. It's, it's a good ratio. And you know, the question often comes up is like, well, what's the right number to have? And I mean, yeah. I think this answer is different for every organization, but we feel like security is not just a, um, important for defending the business, but it's also a huge opportunity to create positive impact on the broader open source community. And frankly, every company that builds and operates and comes together as community on GitHub. And I think our investments commensurate with what we see as that massive opportunity and responsibility. Um, so, so like I said, that first piece is really just making sure that the business is secure. The second piece is building secure software, but the third is really, yeah. Can I ask you to linger there on that first piece? Is that even, is that even possible? And you say, or my first mission is to secure the organization. Are you, like, when you think about securing the organization, you're, you're trading risk, right? You're trading risk in terms of what I'm able to absorb, what I'm not able to absorb. And I asked the question as like a, a philosophical thing about the, just the, the idea that a company can be properly secured. Do you subscribe to that? I think you can always be focusing on making sure that you've increased the attack cost. Um, you know, there, I think the, you sometimes hear people say like, well, I have a goal of not, having a security incident. And this is a bad goal, right? Because you could not have a security incident by not looking for security incidents and doing nothing, Correct. right? And um, so so I think it, those metrics can be 
a little bit misleading. So I think where we really focus on is making sure that we have frameworks that represent what I think is state of the practice or best practice, like making sure that we have, uh, you know, FIDO compliant authentication everywhere, right? So everybody inside GitHub uses a YubiKey often multiple times a day, whether it's to log in for the first time or to step up and check out a higher privilege, making sure that we've nailed strong authentication. And really what that is, is it's brilliant at those basics. And most organizations, um, and certainly I think you see this demonstrated in the news or sort of the state of commentary or some of the talks maybe that we'll see at Black Hat next week is the reality is a lot of organizations have not mastered the basics. And frankly, there are a lot of distractions in security from being brilliant at the basics. But we really focus on getting that stuff right, because those are the things that are most likely to lead to better security outcomes down the road. What are those basics? And I want you to get to point two and three, but just to linger yep. on point one here, because this is a fundamental, is like, what do you consider those basics? Is there a bucket yep. list of basics? Is it tied to the NIST framework? Like, are you just doing it that way? And if you could recommend to your peers, especially the have-nots, because we're running mm -hmm. into this thing in the industry where there's haves who can afford to buy all the latest tools and have the ability to do all the logging and hunting, like you just mentioned. What does that, fun what, what that foundational fundamentals look like? Yeah, well, the one we were just talking about, it's 2023, and we are still telling people to turn on two-factor authentication, let alone strong authentication. So there's obviously some of the places like that that are the core IT basics, making sure that you've got a zero-trust strategy, like what is your strategy for trusting endpoints? How do you reduce the attack service by rather than having to defend thousands of laptops, can you defend one particular virtual machine where people do development in the cloud? Right. Some of those strategies where we've taken to reduce the attack surface there, really have like aggressive policies around security exceptions, vulnerability management, et cetera. So you mentioned things like, are you following NIST? I think it transposes well onto something like NIST CSF. And then you really just sort of audit for continuous improvement, right? And in the past, I've used things like vSIM or SAM. And I think what those can help you do is say, am I falling behind in any particular area? And am I generally speaking, making progress toward maturity. And I think you're never done with security. It's not something that you say, great, we're secure and we move on and uh, and we reallocate all of our investments elsewhere. But I do think it's like a marathon. You need to train to become proficient in order to be able to compete, but you then need to keep training if you want to remain at a high level. And I think that's that type of a model where you're continuously exercising, building, developing, and refining um, is very much consistent with our focus on, especially the basic elements of security. Uh, again, I just going to let you get into like the other two pillars that you were mentioning. Yeah. So the second real big pillar of our security strategy is really focused around making sure that the platform, so, you know, there's GitHub, the business in terms of all of our corporate systems and how our, how our employees get things done inside the company. But the second one is really security and safety of the platform. And the goal and idea there is really to make sure that GitHub and all of its products and services make a safe and secure home for developers everywhere in the open source communities that are counting on us. And this shows up in the traditional, how do we make sure that, you know, the github.com software that we ship and all the things that run on it are secure and meet the expectations of all of our customers. But it's also our trust and safety investments. It's our anti-spam and abuse investments. And a lot of those things are really important because frankly, they help us keep things like the free tiers of some of our services available to the open source developers who depend on and count on GitHub. So there's a pretty substantial investment there that those investments also accrue to things like um, you may have seen some of the news last year where we found things like compromised OAuth keys that were being used to 
basically conduct these ecosystem attacks where you saw probably two or three weeks ago, we published a blog um, sharing some indicators associated with an actor who we saw attacking entities that use github.com for development. So our ability to see and disrupt those attacks that are occurring on the ecosystem is very much a part of that second pillar. And the, th the third pillar is really around for all the developers who are there, but in particular open source developers, how do we help them get to better security outcomes? And this comes in the form of things like we give away a lot of our open source or we give away a lot of our security tooling to open source, um, things like our code scanning capabilities. But it's also in the form of investments to generally raise that watermark for security across the ecosystem with things like requiring everybody on GitHub to use two-factor authentication, which is a very hard, very complex engineering problem. But you know, I mentioned in the first pillar, everybody at GitHub uses a YubiKey every day. And while I know not every open source developer is going to have access to a YubiKey, we do want to make sure that people understand that we really think the supply chain, supply chain security starts with security of the developer. And we need to make sure that their account, the things that they have access to and the communities that they're a part of have those basic levels of hygiene that we would expect in a more traditional IT security context. I want to ask a tricky question as it relates to uh, use of multi-factor authentication, because when I look at, you're familiar with SSO.tacks, this I name am. and shame websites that uh, uh, basically name and shame's company for charging for SSO integration. Your company's listed there. And of course, you're, you're, it's a cost for you. And, and, and I understand the, the implications of the business, but how do you view, I, mean, I talk a little bit about the haves versus have-nots. How would you, how do you view that, that, that line, that balance around you mentioned giving away things for free versus charging for like crucial things like SSO integration. Do you like, does that list annoy you? You know, I I'm familiar with the list. Uh, it's, as you might imagine, it's been brought up to me before, you know, it is a ultimately a more nuanced pricing packaging business conversation. I will mm -hmm. say a lot of customers who are looking for those features are buying that tier of the product. Well, they anyway. have to though, right? In fairness, they have to, if they need it, right? <laughs> In some, in some of those cases, yes. And, you know, of course, we're always willing to have conversations with those customers about what the right fit is for them in those particular contexts. But again, a lot of those customers who are already looking for those features are already buying that tier or higher of the product anyway. You understand the frustration from the defender, though. I mean, you come from an, an old sort background through your, you know, days at Duo. You've, you've been on the other side of that trench for many, many years. You understand the, 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 the economic realities of attempting to secure an organization. I do. So. I do. And, and, you know, in, in fairness, there's also a lot of security features that we have been able to make free or security improvements that we have been able to make for free. So while I acknowledge the feedback on that one, it's, I also want to acknowledge, you know, there have been a lot of investments that we've made that we've really pushed down and out to, to the benefit of customers for no additional charge, things like additional logging refinements to things like personal access tokens. So, you know, we really have made a number of investments in that area, which is not to make any particular commitment about this one in particular. And again, I appreciate the feedback on that front, but you know, there is definitely a litany of other security work capabilities and features that we're you know, really focused on making sure that not only do we push out and make available, but, but there's successful adoption in those areas as well. Right, and one of those things I want to give you credit for is uh, CodeQL. I think uh, it it it's popped up in in my conversations as one of the most significant things uh, out of GitHub, making that available for free and really shifting things left around getting rid of entire attack classes. Do you are you tracking data around how that has helped developers and if there's been a reduction in certain classes, disappearance of classes of vulnerabilities? Can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons from that specific project? 
Yeah, I mean, I think code scanning, so thanks for bringing it up. I mean, I think code scanning is a remarkable technology and certainly, especially now running uh, both security and engineering, I have the opportunity not just to be a customer of it internally because it's integral to our own product strategy, but also to be close to the engineering team and to be able to talk to the experts. I mean, we really have phenomenal expertise going into that work. But what I think is really unique and powerful about that is, you know, CodeQL and the productization of that that we call code scanning is is pretty remarkable in that a lot of it is very much community driven, right? So code scanning the product that a lot of our customers use and again, that we give away to open source communities, they're all benefiting actually from community contribution from the security research community where they're submitting new queries and they're able to then uh, be compensated for that, which I think is healthy for the ecosystem and all the consumers of code scanning as a service then benefit from that as well. And, you know, when you look and you say like, okay, well, how do you measure success on that? Right. Well, it's certain particular amount of like, for example, CWE or CVE coverage against a particular language, like the mm-hmm. density is pretty good. I don't have any of the uh, particular stats at my finger that I could give you some quotables on, but, um, but we do get a lot of great feedback from customers on that. And one of the big investments that we're really making is to make sure that it's actually easier for people to onboard into that. So in the open source space where people are, um, you know, where they're not paying anything to have access to, you know, those capabilities and free public repos, the uh, GitHub Security Lab, which is doing a lot of great security research generally in open source, part of their mission is to actually just go out and help those open source projects adopt those tools and capabilities. Because in many cases, those developers don't necessarily have, in all those cases, a strong security expert on their team or as a part of their community. So it's helpful that the security lab can actually go in and help drive adoption on that front. But yeah, I think CodeQL has been a phenomenal development, but in particular, we've seen a lot of great success and a lot of success stories from customers and from open source communities coming back to us and sharing narratives like what you described of like, hey, isn't it great that we exterminated this bug class or that we found these variants. Interestingly, when um, Log4j happened, you know, we saw bounty queries basically being contributed back to help find variants of that, uh, you know, within the first few days. And it's just phenomenal to be able to see that collective response that that helps enable in the broader ecosystem. When you think of the supply chain, open source supply chain ecosystem, like how did we end up here? It's been what, 20 years of heavy investment in cybersecurity and mitigations and killing bug classes and all the offensive security research and all the work on open source security. And here we are with like a supply chain crisis. Like, can you help me and the audience understand if this is just the state of play it's going to be forever? We just kind of, this is what security looks like in reality? Or do you genuinely get a feeling that we're making some sort of progress in the grand scheme of things? I do think we're making progress, Ryan. Um, you know, I, I hope that you're not writing those same headlines 20 years from now uh, that we haven't made progress. Uh, but you so, understand but the question though, right? Isn't I, it, I very isn't much it, do. Isn't it frustrating? I mean, how do you wake up in the morning excited for work when this is the status quo, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I can give you an easy answer to that one. What, what I'm excited about in terms of coming to work, especially in this job at GitHub at this time that we're in, where this is such a mainstream challenge is... There's so much ripe opportunity in front of us. If we just get focused on actually helping the developers who are actually writing the software that we've become dependent on. And if you look at some of the headlines and stories over the course of the last 20 years, I mean, even recently, generally speaking, I think people still don't actually have a great understanding of how to think about, again, the open source software that has become not just critical, but 
the majority in many cases of software products that they use on a consumer basis on a uh, day in and day out. And you, you don't have to look very far. And actually, if you look back at Log4j, um, there was a tweet that I'm uh, trying to recall like spe- the specifics of, but somebody had actually sent a vendor questionnaire to the Apache volunteer developers who were working on Log4j demanding answers as to what their patching SLA was and, you know, how long has this bug been in existence? And, you know, sort of the classic like security vendor questionnaire. And it's not to say that that's not a set of questions that you can imagine um, people might want answered, but it's, it, to me, what it reflected and what I think you see play out in a lot of different places is it reflects a misunderstanding of the ecosystem of how commercial entities and open source communities work together to create these items going forward. And the challenge is, if you think that, you know, like, let's just say we're going to levy, you know, everybody who wants to have their open source software consumed must provide the following five things. Like the incentives on that just don't actually make sense at all, unless you make it so easy for the open source developers that it becomes a non-factor. And I think just understanding these relationships and dynamics and figuring out how do you actually give back? How do you become a constructive contributor, not just a consumer of what's in open source? How do you actually enable many of those open source developers in such a way where it's actually reciprocal benefit for both them and the organizations that are consuming their projects and software? And this can be in the form of like monetary sponsorship, but generally speaking, there's opportunity for better partnership because if the consequences or the the costs of good supply chain security roll all the way down the hill until they clobber the open source developer who came to a community to create something that they love and care about and that maybe they depend on personally, like that's 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 a losing strategy. So I, I'm very focused on, particularly at GitHub, but also with OpenSSF, how do we help set those developers up for success? And I think this is everything from some of the free tooling that's being made available to also continuing to drive things like the public-private partnership. And you mentioned you had Omkar on the show recently, but I think the work that OpenSSF is doing to help the public sector build smart regulation that contemplates some of these realities is so, so important. But then a third piece of this that I think is emergent, and it's early days, but to me, this is very encouraging, is actually um, what we're seeing with AI. And just you know, from my own firsthand experience with things like GitHub Copilot, you know, we've always thought of shifting security left, right, has been a part of this, is we want to shift security left, shift security left, shift security left. And what that's always meant has been security happens sort of around the CICD time, right? Like after you've written the code, but before you probably shift it somewhere. And if your AI pair programmer is helping you as you're doing the work, like as you're bringing your idea to code, this is a radically further left shift than we've been talking about at any point in the last 20 years. And I'm excited about what that means for code that's yet to be written. Now, what that doesn't solve is code that was written 10 years ago that nobody's patched and nobody's actively maintaining anymore. So we still have a lot of challenges in that space. But some of the emergent work with public-private partnership through places like OpenSSF or the opportunities that AI creates or just getting focused on the needs of maintainers and how to help them help everyone else get to better outcomes. I think there's a lot of promise and a lot of reason to be excited, but it's a long game. I mean, this is going to be, um, you know, again, I hope you weren't, wouldn't be writing the same headlines uh, 20 years from now, but we will be talking about this for the next decade and beyond. You're super bullish on AI and co-programming and someone over your shoulder kind of pointing out and pinpointing specific areas of problems. And that's that's what it's it's looking like now. Can you envision it? Like, what, what, where do you see AI beyond what we're currently seeing as like a chat app next to a program or, or some sort of chat bot? Is there, are there more use cases from AI that you're anticipating? Yes. Uh, so, you know, today, how we currently see 
a lot of AI integrations, both in what you can see today with things like GitHub Copilot, but even just more generally, uh, where companies are experimenting with AIs. You can you spend see, a second talking about what GitHub Copilot is, just for the audience to yeah? So think about GitHub have Copilot. Context, as your, yeah, think about GitHub Copilot as your AI pair programmer. So as you are, if you're a developer and you're working in um, your IDE, let's just say it's Visual Studio Code, as you're writing, Copilot is taking into account what it sees that you're doing and the work that you're doing in that particular repository to give you very high quality suggestions to help you keep going. And um, what a lot of developers tell us is it's it's excellent at, in particular, writing boilerplate, but just if you look all up across all of the code that Copilot's writing, in some cases it's writing up to half of the code that developers who are using it are writing. So it helps them complete tasks faster, helps them focus on the parts of their job and doing development that are more interesting to them. So there's a wide range of benefits really around developer happiness, but also you can see that you get these other development uh, benefits from in places like security. So if you contrast that to a lot of other security tooling capabilities that we use today, and you know certainly over the course of the last two decades, most of them were not designed with developer happiness in mind. And most of them are brick walls or perceived as interference to uh, people being able to get their jobs done. But I think the beauty of something like Copilot from a security perspective is it's it's helping you go faster and by leveraging what it has learned, what the model knows and has learned, but it can also help you be more secure, be happier, et cetera. So there's a bunch of other benefits associated with that. But that but Copilot, I would think about it as it is your AI paired programmer in the IDE assisting you with productivity. And then, you know, the other part of your question was of course like, well, where do we go from here? And I think it's it's such early days. Like I was actually having a conversation with somebody recently where I said, do you remember that, you know, before Thanksgiving of last year in the US, ChatGPT wasn't even on the map. And really no, and the first all of Black you know, Hat will have some sort of chat DPT integration next yes, week. Next yeah, week and I, I made a joke at RSA conference this year that I think the only reason there weren't more booth signs associated with chat integrations into the security products that were there was because it was too late to have them reprinted before RSA in, in April. The time window was too short. Um, but I think you're right. I think it'll be a big theme at Black Hat. I think it'll be a big theme for years to come. But if you look at the progress in terms of real world implementation of AI, I mean, I can tell you that Copilot is booming at GitHub in terms of the demand and appetite for it, which is fantastic. But when you imagine the other use cases, I mean, I'm really excited about what that can mean for bug hunters, for other productivity needs, for other security suggestions and capabilities. The experiences will not stop with chat-based interaction. Mm -hmm. I think that's one modality in which people can interact with and benefit from AI. But you know, being able to ask how many bugs are in this code? Have I solved everything? Tell me about the history of this code and when and how long it's taken to address defects. I mean, there's a sort of a universe of questions that will probably get answered in the course of the next several years through different experiences. So I'm very, very bullish on what that'll mean for developers and security generally. Do you think it'll eventually help with uh, at least minimizing the instances of memory corruption issues? Again, uh, memory corruption vulnerabilities is again the bulk of of, of defects we see. Are you starting yes. to see? Are you starting to see a reduction? Are you starting to see Copilot making a small dent there? And is this a story I'm not going to write in say ten years? And so not a buffer overflow. <laughs> I mean, the good news is some of this is already happening. And it, again, I think the encouraging thing is to say. This is already happening in the very, very early days of seeing AI-assisted 
uh, coding products or to help developers. Um, back in February, we published a blog post about just some updates to GitHub Copilot and the models that underlie it. And one of the things that we highlighted is actually Copilot does help with a, not suggesting vulnerable code, but also telling you when you're suggesting vulnerable code. So some of the things that you would traditionally think about as like feedback that you get from your SaaS tooling, getting that in the IDE is, if you think about it, like a much, much better time and place to respond to that feedback before you even hit tab to accept that suggestion. So I do think that as models get better and as we fine tune models to better contemplate things like what are all the best practices for a given language, right? Because you certainly, I don't think it's a reasonable expectation to say that every developer everywhere who works in, let's say Python is also an expert on the range of defects or how each CWE can be instantiated in Python. Um, but if the model can do that for you and give you not just the suggestion, but feedback as to why it gave you the suggestion, which again, this is, this is already starting to happen. Um, and you think about the fact that that's true in products that have basically been in the commercial market less than two years, I think we've got lots of reason to be hopeful about the bright future ahead. I was hoping to make it through this conversation without mentioning SBOM, but I have to ask you, do you expect that and some of the mandates coming out of government and some of the energy around building the tooling and all the happy stuff now to have some sort of significant contribution, or is this going to add more burden onto developers to do Every time the government gets involved, it becomes more important some on people. What are your thoughts on the whole SBOM push? I think if I think if SBOM is a vehicle to getting attention on and people thinking about the right ways to solve for supply chain security, then I think that's beneficial. I think what's dangerous, and you see some of this, so this is a, this is a problem that we are realizing to some extent, is where people equate supply chain security with SBOM, which which happens a lot. Um, that is dangerous to me because realistically, we know that in the spirit of our earlier in the conversation, we were talking about brilliance at the basics. Well, a lot of organizations struggle with, frankly, because it's hard, vulnerability management generally or configuration management generally or asset inventory generally. So having the SBOM is great, but do you understand what to do with it? Do you know what questions you're asking of it? If you find something in the SBOM that doesn't match your expectations, how do you respond to that? So, you know, SBOM is, it's a tool that's going to go in the toolbox of helping with all things supply chain security, but plenty of people are going to apply that tool in the wrong fashion. Um, and there's a, there's definitely a risk of seeing that particular tool as a panacea. So I think helping paint that in the broader picture of how does this all fit together is actually really, really critical. So for, you know, often when I get the SBOM question, you know, I try to reframe that in the context of like, well, how do you fit several things together such that you realize something like salsa level three compliance? And I think that opens up the aperture a little bit on, ah, yes, supply chain is actually a lot of different stuff. And it's also stuff that's not even necessarily contemplated in a framework like that. It goes all the way back to like, are the developers who are working on this software secure in their accounts and using things like two-factor authentication on them? Because SolarWinds, Obviously, a wake-up call for a lot of people in the industry. If you if you weren't affected by it, you're certainly your board asked you about it. But the reality is, a lot of attacks are executed so much cheaper than that because a developer might have a weak password or um, you know or a weak credential or a path that they haven't uh, kept track of, etc. And that's why we think it's so important to help solve problems like that as well. And I think in many ways that will hopefully be one of the most meaningful contributions that I think GitHub can make to the broader security supply chain space, because if we don't do that and you can just compromise somebody who's a maintainer on a critical project that's got, you know, 
tens of millions of downloads a year, then uh, we we will still have a lot of work to do. So it's it's a so you're not a you're not a big fan of S bomb. Can you say what what do you like about it? Or what do you like about the promise of it? I think what I like about the promise of S bomb is its transparency and it gives you insight into those components. And I think that is helpful, particularly because again, how many of us either have to or would anyway ask a particular vendor that we count on, do you use this software or how is this incorporated into your code? And I think that can be a breadcrumb to help you think through like, okay, well, is this used in a way that's exploitable, right? Because you can use a piece of vulnerable software, but not in a way that's that's exploitable. So I do think that can serve as a roadmap, much in the same way in an IT context, you might say, do we have systems that need this patch? Uh, and are they vulnerable to you know this particular exploit? I do think it's beneficial in that perspective. But again, I think we've we have kind of deified SBOM a little bit as the solution to um, supply chain. It's not, um, but I do think it's a, an important standard. There's a lot of good work going on there. But if we don't keep our eye on the bigger picture, um, then SBOM is not going to actually deliver us from all of our supply chain woes. But it, I do think it can be part of the solution. We're running out of time, but I have two quick questions I got to hit you with, which is the word passwordless pops up a lot in conversations around GitHub on their blog. Uh, it also pops up a lot at RSA and Black Hat on the show floor with all these vendors hyping passwordless and it becomes this marketing buzzword that no one knows what it means or no one kind of cares about it because it's been bastardized by marketing. To you, passwordless is a real thing. Can you tell me what does that look like now? And what's the big vision for a passwordless world? What does that look like? You know, my, my vision for this, Ryan, is it's it's still too hard to be secure in really any context, right? Like the as yeah, a Microsoft just lost a key, right? I mean, if Microsoft yeah, it, could mishandle a key, I mean, who, what chances do the rest of us have? I mean, that's how I look at it, really. Yeah, well, I'm reminded of, you know, when I was in graduate school, I read this paper um, that really formed a lot of my thinking on this. And it was called Why Johnny Can't Encrypt. And it was written by Alma Witten, who was a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon back in the, I think it was late, I think it was 1999 is when this paper was written. And the, 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 basically the central point of the paper is we write security tools. PGP was, PGP5 was the one in that particular case. Um, but we don't do it in such a way that contemplates the end user who in many cases is the security lady, right? Like they're not experts on security. They're not going to necessarily know um, how to use a particular tool. And, and in fact, the worst case is that they use a tool thinking that they got a particular security outcome that they make decisions that's dependent on when they don't actually have it. So the central thesis is that it's really like, we don't really often do a good job of designing security for real people who are trying to get things done. What I like about passkeys is it is good a good example of security that's designed to be used by real people. And the idea that if my phone is my uh, keychain and I'm able to store credentials in an easy way and I don't have to worry about fumbling around with a token or um, you know, receiving a, a, a code over SMS that I have to then within 30 seconds you know, type back into a field and hope that I get it right the first time. I mean, to me, this is the next natural evolution of both having good, strong security and a good user experience. And what's really encouraging there is even if you look back at like the U2F standard, you know, which wasn't that long ago, it never really had the full browser support that needed to, to kind of take off. But if you look now and compare that to passkeys, I mean, this was like, you know, not day one, but it was pretty close to day one support across the board from a lot of the browsers. And you've seen a lot of major platforms, including GitHub, make that available early. So it'll take time to get people there. And obviously, you know, we're pushing two-factor for everyone who uses GitHub. 
and it's tr a true statement that a lot of developers can't do anything better than SMS for 2FA. And you might say, well, didn't, doesn't NIST say not to do that? Or isn't that worse than, uh, worse than having nothing? I mean, I, I, I don't subscribe to that. I do think it's better than nothing. In many cases, it's the best that a lot of developers have who may not have access to a That percentage is getting smaller? I think that percentage will get smaller over time. I mean, right now we're doing the big enrollment push and we do want people to enroll in the strongest factor they have. So if they have a security key, great. That's what we want them to use. Um, but over time, we will absolutely go look at developer accounts that are on GitHub. And if we see that they're using SMS, we're going to nudge them and encourage them to raise the bar on the level of uh, security that the authenticator is that they're using. So that'll be that's going to be something that we're pushing on for a long time. But right now, the goal is to make sure that everybody who uses GitHub.com to contribute code is using two-factor by the end of this year. So we've got about, uh, what is that even being, about five months to go. Um, but once we get that done, we will definitely be helping raise everybody up to make sure that they're eventually everybody who can use passkeys, we hope will be using them. And, but you're always going to be trading off the risk of that subset of users who will always be on Absolutely. SMS, right? and, because it's know, a reality. Home, it, it is, and certainly as the home for all developers, we want to make sure that GitHub is also a place where developers who don't have access to the latest and greatest equipment um, can still get their start there. I think that's part of what makes open source a great community or set of communities to be a part of, and we want to remain accessible uh, to folks on that. So obviously we'll monitor that over time, but the plan right now is to help everybody use the most secure method that they can while making sure that uh, people can still be included in those communities with those new requirements that we've made available. Last question, I promise. You mentioned your board will ask you, and I want to ask about reporting to the board. There are new requirements from the SEC now for public companies around board reporting. You have a certain quick number of days to determine if it's material to, to, to do your disclosure. How are you as a CISO preparing for that? Uh, even if you're not a public, uh, uh, if you talk to your peers, if, even if you're not the CISO for a publicly traded company, you're going to end up, it's going to filter down. How are you preparing for this reality? I think these reporting requirements, Ryan, are going to continue to crop up. I mean, it's the SEC today, but I think we'll have other requirements coming up from other But this is a significant change bodies. though, right? It is. It's a significant change. But at the same time, like if you look, you know, India had a um, data breach reporting law that was measured in hours. Um, I believe it was last year. So so it's certainly not I mean, it's maybe newer in the United States, but um, but it's not new generally that you have these like fairly aggressive reporting timelines. And I think where the where the pressure comes on is actually to make sure that first off, like I think CISOs need to be aware of and monitoring and in communication with their teams, but also with company governance to make sure that they're sharing this news. Um, but second is, I think it's also requires that you have to really actually quite quickly be able to put the story together about what happened. It's not enough to say, hey, like a, a bad thing happened, we'll get back to you in a month. And that's um, not a trivial really, task, though. I mean, in the not reality, it's not trivial and, at all. It, it's not. And I would assert that a lot of organizations are probably not in a place where they can easily comply with that. But I'd go back to what we talked about earlier, which is, you know, there's a maturity arc that really every organization has to travel. And to your point, where you stop on that, in some cases, from an investment standpoint, is a risk conversation for the management and the governance of, of, the, um, of the company. But I think a lot of organizations are not going to be able to comply with a lot of those timelines, in part because they just don't necessarily have the resources or capabilities to do so. But I think it's the right anchoring point to pull people forward to continue to invest in security, because... Unfortunately, you, like we know that generally speaking, it's there, there's a lot of work to do across the board in really every domain of 
security. And we do need to make sure that there are the right incentives in place. We'll see how this plays out in practice in terms of implementing that as a capability. But I think continuing to put some of the pressure on, making sure that companies are adequately focused on and resourcing it, not viewing security just as a cost center, but actually as a business enabler, you're protecting the business and driving it forward. Um, that I, I hope that that will be one of the effects of something like this, even if the implementation has you know varying levels of success in terms of playing out. I got about 15 questions on my list here that I haven't gotten to, so you'll have to come back. Mike Handley, Chief Security Officer and SVP of Engineering at GitHub. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. I appreciate it.